Welcome to the Marketing Millennials, the No BS Marketing Podcast. I'm Daniel Murray, and join me for unfiltered conversations with the brains behind marketing's coolest companies. The one request I tell our guests, stories or it didn't happen. Get ready to turn the f*** up. What is that time frame on path to conversion? At Indochino, I knew that the average you know, purchase path was about four weeks. And I could see that correlation of the boost in top of funnel, not converting in the same month, but converting the, the following month. And over the years, when I turned it up and down, I could see those uh, lagging indicators really follow. And we could see how media sensitive the business was. We could even then build the forecasting models directly related to the media. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the pod. I'm here with Pete, the CMO of Unbounce. We're going to have a good conversation today, but I'm going to start off and ask him how he got into marketing. So, Pete, describe your journey into how did you get into this? Hey, Daniel. Great to be here today, and thanks for having me on your show. My journey in marketing has been a long 25-year-plus journey. And I started that at Procter & Gamble in packaged goods marketing. And I still believe that as a, a marketer, getting experience at one of those tier one companies where you really learned the multidiscipline of marketing is just a great grounding. From P&G, I went on to a number of ad agencies and really learned marketing strategy and positioning and branding across you know a broad number of categories. But where it really started to get interesting, at one point, I was chief executive officer of Lava Life, which was one of the early internet dating companies. Started at well, the same time as Match.com. And we built that business from about $30 million to $100 million in three years. And that was really the beginning of the digital age and pay-per-click advertising. And that was really when I started to get excited about digital. And then most recently and prior to Unbounce, I was chief revenue officer at Indochino, which was men's made-to-measure suits, a digitally uh, native brand um, that extended into bricks and mortar but we built that business from $20 million to $100 million in five years. And really, we scaled that with a lot of digital media. And I think there's a really good story on how to scale media, get efficiencies, and so on. And what's interesting is I, you know, I've really been a student of marketing attribution and acquisition models and I do love to geek out on the data side of things. And when the Unbounce opportunity came along, which of course is landing pages, a, a fundamental component to any marketer's stack, I'd never been on the B2B side or software as a service, but I was pretty excited as a strong consumer and believer in digital marketing and all the latest and greatest tools. I was pretty excited to hop over the fence and have a look at the point of view from the B2B side. So uh, here I am at Unbounce as Chief Marketing Officer. 
So you've been like an early evangelist of digital marketing. When you're going into a new company, like you've done with your few stints, how do you break down the digital marketing playbook? What are the steps to break down different areas of how I should execute a digital marketing playbook? The first thing that I would look at is that balance between organic and direct traffic or customers versus coming through paid channels. And so generally speaking, if we were optimizing to getting new customers in marketing, for example, I would want to look at my cost per acquisition at each of the paid channel levels. I would probably want to look at my lifetime value of a customer. And as a very early starting point, I always look at lifetime value over cost of acquisition. So for example, if a lifetime value of a customer was $500 in a business and it costs $100 to get a new customer, five to one would be a very healthy ratio. That would be a good starting point to say we could scale media. And of course, we'd want to look at that at the margin basis, not just the revenue basis, so that we could see whether the acquisition of customers is profitable. Generally speaking, because very often marketing budgets in companies are large expense centers, I like to think of them as uh, profit centers now because marketing today is really about revenue growth. But what I would do is a deep, deep dive into marketing channels and return on ad spend and attribution. So I can tell you, even being at Unbounce for 13 years, I've lowered the cost of acquisition by over 50%. And we're, you know, our new customers are up 13 or 14% year to date. And that really involves a journey of going week to week to week at all of your, your paid advertising and your click pads and the value propositions and then just turning off campaigns that aren't working, scaling the ones that are. But it's a pretty disciplined approach uh, and you need some fairly good attribution tools to do that. Although I think on the major vendors like Google and Facebook, the panels are good enough within those tools that really most marketers, even on a self-serve basis, should be able to get pretty far along the path in terms of um, their optimizations. How do you um, think about breaking down the media mix? So right now, what are you investing in the same, let's say Facebook versus, you don't have to give me the, the dollar amount, but like Facebook, LinkedIn, whatever you are investing in. And then also, what are you investing in the organic side too? If I start with the paid side, Generally speaking, my first bastion would always be non-branded search. So customers that have intent for a category that are searching for that category. I need to buy a mattress. You know, I need a landing page. I need a suit. We would want to then look at our non-branded keywords and cost per click, cost per acquisition. So that would be a pretty good area to capture intent. 
It's a little controversial whether brands should buy their own branded keywords or not in paid search. I'm a believer in buying your own branded keyword. They're usually not that expensive, but there are other theories which would suggest that that's just part of the journey. And if they know your branded keyword, then you don't necessarily need to pay for that click. They'll find you anyways. But in a category where there's competitive conquesting going on, if your competitor buys your branded keyword, they can then have battle cards that would work against you and they could you know, steal your otherwise high intent traffic. A good thing is also breaking apart those two, because I think a lot of people when they're investing in like search they're like okay i'm going to put more money in search but it's like a lot of their like acquisition is coming from branded keywords not unbranded keywords and i think yeah you really need to know that nuance i'm about right now i'm about 80 20 in favor of non-branded so i try to keep that branded search you know not too high because you're not necessarily getting that new awareness or you're not really building any top of funnel activity with your branded search. From there, Daniel, I'm a big proponent of retargeting. So if I get someone to land on my landing page or click through to my website, then very often I will use social retargeting for just the journey, a little bit of you know mid-funnel activity and just keep the awareness going and really between paid search and paid social, those would always be my general channels. Now, when we want to jump over the fence and talk to organic and direct channels, now we have a much wider net in terms of building top of funnel awareness. So I would go to PR, public relations, to try to get as much awareness for the brand and the business. I would go to podcasts and speaking opportunities and participating at trade shows within on the industry that you're keeping in. I'm a big believer in content and SEO and typically Unbounce over the years has been a content marketing play. We try to talk to thought leadership, CRO, the use of landing pages in a stack, and so on. I'm thinking that Unbounce has over 1,200 pieces of content out there between blogs and landing pages and campaigns. And a lot of that is evergreen. And in fact, in the last year, I had a team audit 1,200 pieces and we're refreshing about 200 of them, just updating them for 2023. And it's incredible to see the indexing that happens. So with the, the primary stack of paid search and social taken care of, little bit of top of funnel organic things, then you can start getting some more interesting channel buys. So yes, let's explore LinkedIn. Yes, let's explore paid placements on podcasts and so on. And Daniel, over the years, I've always found that when I get a new channel, and it has an audience, very often we'll get some early wins in that. But once we've tapped an audience out, you need to move on so that you're often getting you know, fresh eyeballs. So I would say that when I was at 
Indochino. And at one point, we had almost an $18 million ad budget. So that was pretty significant. We were probably running 15 to 20 channels and trying to attribute all of them every month to the CPA online and offline channels through various tools and techniques. But uh, I'm a big believer in multi-channel marketing. If I could even simplify a little bit, like like the first thing to do is like come in and capture the existing at- intent in the market because I think like with the, the existing channels of people looking to buy in the market and people to who are coming to your landing page already, like think about capturing ex- existing intent in the market. Then you could start thinking about, okay, where are some channels I could build awareness? You could build awareness organic or you can start looking at like the Facebook play where you, it's more like, creating the demand in the market and making sure people are aware of what landing pages are, how to use landing pages, whatever. I'm just giving specific unbound stuff, but I think it's smart to like, first, there are people searching for your product right now. So let's like start capturing that demand. And then once we set officially doing that, then we can start doing the more creating demand, creating brand plays. But the first goal is always to get revenue in the door a really often difficult metric that you need to understand is what is that time frame on path to conversion from the time of brand unaware to brand aware to I'm now in consideration phase to purchase. Is that one week, one day, four weeks, eight weeks, and so on. And very often you really need to know that. So for example, at Indochino, I knew that the average you know, purchase path was about four weeks. So if today was June and I wanted to affect my July sales with net new customers, I would have to spike top of funnel activity a month in front of it. And I could see that correlation of the boost in top of funnel not converting in the same month, but converting the, the following month. And over the years, when I turned it up and down, I could see those uh, lagging indicators really follow and we could see how media sensitive the business was. And really, we could even then build the forecasting models directly related to the media. And, you know, I've been able to take that same playbook from Indochino to Unbounce. And so the forecasting model that we just built for, we'll call it for new trial starts, has a function of how much direct and how much organic tr- traffic you know, am I going to get over the years based on you know, 18 months of history and the last three months of behavior, and then the paid cost per acquisition per paid channel. And then we blend that all up together so that the forecasting model is very scientific and very precision. And I can tell you year to date, I'm within 1% of my forecasting model based on a lot of pain and suffering going into building the model in the first place. But it really, when you get that acquisition funnel as scientific as that, it can be really helpful for organizations. Yeah. And I also think getting that down, I think it also helps you like go to your CEO and CFO and prove out those and higher investment channels that you want to do that are top of funnel. Cause you could say, okay, if we're only focusing on capturing demand right now, we're just going to keep level for the next few months. 
Because at some point, when you're capturing demand, there's only so much demand in the market that are people buying. So you have to do your top of funnel awareness. But when you have that model to model out saying, if I turn the dial on top of funnel and a month later, they're converting. Now I know that I can predict next month. Or next month. So I think that's like, I think I want to go a little deeper on that. Like, how do you, like, what goes into like figuring that out? Because obviously all channels have different purchasing intents because like Google, someone searching versus like Facebook, someone's not aware versus like, like, how do you get that down? The challenge, of course, is that your channel attribution is going to be fractional, right? They're going to have a paid search touch point. They're going to have an organic touch point. They may sign up for an email and then they, you know, they get an email, they finish your website. So what we try to do is allocate back on a fractional basis the that new customer to the individual uh, marketing channels. But to answer your question, I'll just use an I'll use an example of paid search, for example. Let's say that a company is spending a hundred thousand a month on paid search, and we decide to go on a journey, and we'll take that up to one hundred and twenty thousand, and then one hundred and fifty thousand, and two hundred thousand. What we try to do is see if the CPAs start to cap out. So like, oh, I was getting a you know acquired customer for $100 on this channel, but now I've doubled my advertising and it's now $200 per customer. Well, I'm no better off. So what we do is we try to scale a channel until it becomes inefficient or it becomes unprofitable. And then we pull it back to get to that homeostasis so that it's a profitable, effective channel. And once a channel has tapped out, I would go back and start a new channel. And it was interesting. At Indochino, we had at one point over the course of two years, I think we put 150 podcasts uh, by through. And these were these were paid ad placements in podcasts, like versus us doing podcast interview like like you and I are doing today. And that ended up being my lowest CPA channel because what would happen is, uh, and we would do a paid placement with with the podcaster. So he'd say, hey, I'm Dan Murray. This is my, you know, I have this audience. And hey, by the way, I stumbled across this company called Indochino. They made these made adventure suits. And I went into the showroom. I got hooked up. I'm wearing it now. I look fantastic. This is all you got to do. So the unit would sort of walk the buyers through almost like through an upper or mid funnel in one ad unit and get people further along. And then we would bolt onto it a limited time offer, which of course always shortens the the, the time to buy. So that was pretty interesting. But anyways, the point I wanted to make is yes, spend up on your channel until it becomes less efficient and then pull back on it and go to a new channel. When do you also decide like to come back to a channel? Because I think like, like just because like sometimes you spend up on a channel, you've used it, like it worked in the past. Sometimes it's it, it will work again, maybe not right now, but like do you keep a, a little bit of investment just to test that it, it's still working or like when do you go back to a channel if you think it might work? A hundred percent. I'm just saying that like you might be over-invested in a channel to the point where it's not giving you the marginal gains uh, that you would hoping for. And hopefully even within channels, you can certainly rotate your audiences. And you know, if we talk about the usual suspects of LinkedIn or Meta or Google, there's like 
gazillions of audience uh, metrics you can play with. You're never going to buy the entire world or the entire universe. So lots of room there. I think the second part of this is like, okay, so you've like nailed down like media mix or something, but I think a lot of people forget that marketing is very simple. Like there's like, not simple in the sense, it's simple in the math equation, not simple to execute. Like you need people in the funnel and you need to convert them. So I want to go to the second part of like, like now, like you've got these, like, like how do you think about like when to move the needle in the conversion side of it versus like moving the needle up top? Because I think sometimes a lot of marketers, they're pretty efficient at like acquiring people, but they're not efficient at like taking them to the landing page and the landing page to like check out the checkout to retention. So how do you think about moving those levers? All right. So assuming a lot of what we just talked about was relatively upper funnel and getting in new prospects or new customers to interact somehow with one of your products. Either you've a campaign is sent to a landing page, a campaign is sent to your website, been on your website and they've surrendered their email address so that they could be on your mailing list or get a 10% off on their first offer. So then that, that middle to lower funnel area, which we call path to conversion marketing, could be a function of retargeting and we could do sequential retargeting where we're introducing people to five different ad units over time that give a little more about the company each time. Or even better is if they've surrendered their email address and then you can do what I call a nurture drip campaign on path to conversion marketing. And here's the next five sequential emails a much lower cost than ad serving, and you're in control of the environment. So then to shift gears a little bit, once a customer has converted, so they've now made a purchase of some kind, I think that's when, as marketers, we kick into the retention side of the house. So if it's the case of something like Unbounce, and it's a monthly subscription service, I want to make sure that that customer is being activated. I want to make sure they're engaging with the product. I want to make sure they're publishing a number of landing pages. I want to make sure they're getting conversions off that. And I want to make sure they have two or three good months of success behind their belt so that they'll be a longtime customer and not sure. And there's all kinds of behavioral indicators that we can get with product usage and engagement and all kinds of early 10-year intervention we can do, whether that be through in-app messaging, whether that be through emails, whether that be through customer engagement teams, and so on. Similarly, we can look at products that might have you know, repeat purchases. If I bought one, would I buy two? Or what would my lifetime value be? So I do believe that that customer marketing or retention marketing is as important as the acquisition side of the house. So really, in my opinion, a well-run marketing team would be divided on acquisition and retention and be rigorously focused on both sides and using a number of performance metrics and KPIs as the the North Stars or performance benchmarks? 
I think the one thing that marketers forget that customer loyalty is like very fleeting. It's way easier to retain a customer than acquire a customer. So once they're already in the funnel, what you could do to keep them engaged and every touch point, I don't care like product and stuff is marketing. Like you have your brand has to be there. You have to be there. You have to show up, keep your customer's attention, but also your competitors are also innovating rapidly. They're trying to market to your company. So, so just because you have a customer doesn't mean these people are not being marketed to right now or like trying to trying to get them to flop and or like is your product innovating at the same rate as the other customer? So like how do you keep them in that funnel? Not in the funnel, but as a customer is just important. I think people, a lot of marketers forget that and only think about acquisition side of the house. A pretty classic approach which is still so relevant today and that's basically scoring your customer database on some dimensions to give you a loyalty factor or otherwise so the model that i like is what we call an rfm model so that's recency frequency and monetary value so how frequently do they buy how recently have they bought and what's their total lifetime value and then we can score each of those, call it five to one, you're going to get 125 segments. And then you can cluster your segments into, for lack of a better word, good, better, and best customers and last customers. And then the idea is through your marketing intervention, email marketing, in-app messaging, customer experience teams, or otherwise, you should have strategies to try to trade up your cohorts. Make your good customers better, make your better customers best, reward your best customers with some kind of recognition and VIP treatment, and then programs to win back or resolicit your last users. Using AI tools now and with the sophistication of the customer data platforms out there, you should also be able to do almost like predictive modeling to see, oh, these are your customers that are at risk, they're slowing down, or they've they've lengthened the time between purchase, or you haven't seen them for 90 days, you're never going to see them again. And uh, I think those are pretty amazing tools. And hopefully, most marketing teams have either a revenue ops department or a business intelligence team, but the data guys that hopefully really understand marketing and can really work with the marketing teams to get at that data because really, I just find that marketing today in 2023 is so data-driven. And it, you know, yes, we're going to do branding and yes, we're going to use creativity and all those things, but so much has got to be just database that you really need to have a, a, a strong marketing-savvy data team. I used to be a marketing op. So when I used to hire like data analysts on my team, like one of the most thing I look for was like, did they have like recency, like marketing experience? Do they understand like marketing? I think that was more for like, that was more for like the mid-level to like senior level stuff. Like if they were good at data, I could start teaching them about marketing as it goes. But I think like, I always look for like, hey, have they worked with the marketing team? Because it's, it's so much different than just doing data, than doing data and being able to connect the dots like, okay, they understand pay, they understand retention, they understand 
conversion rates, understand what inputs go into marketing team. I think it's so important. I think that's a great insight. What's important to me as a CMO and, and what I try to do over and over again is I like all of the people on the marketing team to be relatively self-serve and sufficient at data. So I would hope that most of my marketers can do their own pivot tables off a, you know, a data warehouse of some kind and can do at first blush a look at their own data. And so with that in mind, you know, more and more companies are using sophisticated tools so that, you know, the self-serve business, so whether they're bolting Tableau onto their data warehouse or whether they're using tools like Redshift and Segment, and there's a number of pretty good tools out there, but it's important for me, for my marketers to be looking at their own data and sort of digging down their own paths of discovery, as opposed to just an independent data team saying, you know, pass, fail, or you should maybe look at this. The key for like a marketing ops or rev ops is to make the data as self-service as possible for marketing. So they could go pull, like you said, go pull a a report in Tableau or pull report in Salesforce or pull report wherever you're keeping your data and being able to take it. And one of the things I used to do in marketing ops is I used to like go and like teach each marketing like leader or marketing group how to pull their own data, how to because otherwise you marketing ops get all these all these requests like, hey, I need a report for this, I need a report for this, and then it, those leaders get delayed and they fall behind and they miss goals and all that stuff. So self-service is so important. What is a marketing hill you would die on? There is nothing like a core idea in marketing. And by that, I mean grounded by a consumer insight and just a really clever breakthrough idea. The power of that in marketing, I think is phenomenal. And so I always want to make sure marketers are curious and, you know, a little bit creative and a little bit analytical and if I take a look at marketing teams, let's say medium-sized companies, 25 to 200 employees, generally speaking, the marketing department's going to be 10 to 15. They probably have like a creative department and, you know, a couple of ad buyers and, you know, a couple of campaign managers. And so I would really hope that they can fuel creativity and big idea thinking. I love that. I think a lot of ways to separate yourself in marketing these days because we just talked about people are having these tools now. They can use AI to do predictive models. Like, but one thing that a lot of marketers that separates a lot of marketers is those like big ideas that move the needle. Like you could do things that are just chip away as marketers, but that big idea that can two X, three X, four X the business or Forex a channel or move the need on our our game changers. And you need creativity for that. Last question I have for you is if someone was starting marketing today, what is a piece of advice that you get would give them that they would come back two years later and thank you for? It's funny, Daniel. I, I did a talk a couple of years ago and I called it How Data Saved My Life. And really you know, going back 25 years ago to brand marketing, we weren't that data focused. We were all about brand and concept and positioning and things. 
But today, I think we need to be data backed to everything. So, so my advice to anybody was really beef up your data chops and, you know, have a reason for everything. And really, you know, at Unbounce, we took the, the media spend from basically a million up to 18 million over five years. And we did that through evidence and attribution. And we could go to the board and convince them to spend that much money. But there was a lot of data on the journey. And I personally learned a ton and found it very rewarding. So data can save your life, I think is not a bad piece of advice for any marketer. I think maybe another one would always be learning. So this is interesting, Daniel. I made a commitment to myself about four months ago to learn AI marketing. And so I'm now hosting a podcast on AI marketing. I'm logged into ChatGBT 100% of the time all day long, and I'm consulting it you know, four or five times. I'm using MidJourney, Dolly, Photoshop, AI, and you know, I'm reading in the news every day about AI marketing tools. And it's interesting, Unbounce, we've been in AI about three years and we actually have AI landing pages based on billions of conversions or pre-optimized in terms of content layout. And so we're pretty excited to be showing up at this time. But Daniel, it's a lot of work studying AI. Like, like I'm literally studying it more than an hour a day. And that's been like for the last um, 90 days, but I'm excited and energized by it. And we're jokingly on the show talking about if robots are coming to get your job as, as marketer. But what I am telling people is robots may not get your job, but an AI marketer will get your job if you're not going to be an AI marketer. So learn and learn AI marketing would be a good piece of advice right now. I talked to a CMO, like this was like two years ago. And she always said to me, like, understand why like new platforms work, even if you're not using them today. And I think this is like a perfect thing of like, even if you're not like using AI in every aspect of your job, you're going out there to learn like why it's the why behind people using it, the use cases. So when you need to implement it into your marketing strategy or need to use it in your marketing strategy or need to hire someone that can help you do this, you can have a great answer for it. And I think that's what like the best marketers do. Like just because you're not on TikTok, like let's say, as a marketer, or you're not an AI as a marketer right now, but understanding why people are on it, how it works, is so important as a marketer to know those things. Well, especially if this is pop culture, right? As marketers, we are tasked with understanding pop culture and trend and making sure we know how to swim upstream with it. Yeah, exactly. I think AI, for everybody who's like scared of that, I think like Right now, at least, like AI is just a tool to be better at your job. So take advantage of that to be like more efficient in your job. Because I think the reason why that an AI marketer will probably would take your job is because they're probably going to be like 30 to 40% more efficient than you at their job. So they, they're executing faster than you. So that's the, that's the reason I think. Well, we, we did a little experiment. We made our marketing team create a department. They had to do a whole campaign only using AI. So they had to do like a campaign brief and the copywriting and the art direction and then see if we could publish a campaign. And it was painful and amazing. But 
the learning is, yes, you, you know, the inputs as a human are super important and it, you really need to know your inputs to get the outputs on AI. But as a result now, the team is all using AI because we forced the experiment. Now they're all seeing that it does play a role in helping them. So that was a really good experiment. I think every marketing team, even if it's like a small scale, should like try that. But thank you so much for being on the show. The last, the last thing I have for you is where could people find your AI show? Where could people find you? I want to give you a couple minutes to talk about where people can find you. So the podcast is called Unprompted AI Marketing and You, and it's on Apple Podcasts. Uh, that's probably a great place to find it. I'm just about to, we just launched it on Friday, so I haven't really got busy yet, but I'm about to get a little more prolific on LinkedIn and start promoting it and starting discussing more AI topics. So that's Peter Housley, H-O-U-S-L-E-Y at LinkedIn. And um Follow Unbounced. Yeah, thank you so much. Also, I mean, this is not sponsored, but shout out to Un- Un- Unbounce. Of, um, I- I've used them since like six years ago for all landing page and scaling, especially for small marketing teams. When I was a small marketing team and there was five people and I had to like test things really fast, it was like the, the greatest tool. Two, now like I'm I working in a bigger... It's literally like I tell marketers like, it's just what you do is use landing pages. Like the difference in conversion and CRO by campaign to landing page, and you can set them up for countless use cases. They're easy to do, and it's just going to make your return on ad spend way better. So we're excited to have the uh, global leading position in landing pages at Unbounce, and we're continuing to innovate. So, well, thank you so much. It's been great, and I appreciate it. Thanks, Daniel. Thanks so much for listening. Tune in next week to hear more great insights from marketing's coolest operators. If you haven't already, please consider subscribing to the Marketing Millennials podcast and giving it a five-star rating. It helps bring more marketers into our community.